Um, so tonight we're going to be coming into the judges. So just to kind of set up a little context, I know it was just last week we went through it, but it's really important to always have biblical context before you're reading anything. After the Exodus, what did God set up with um, Israel? Brought them to Mount Sinai in order to what? But before all that, what did he specifically do with it? Set up a form of government. Yes, a covenant. It's all based on a covenant. Remember, it was a suzerainty covenant. You want an actual definition of it? But suzerainty covenant was common. Talked about this last week. Um, We can see it in like the second millennial. Uh, BC amongst different Hittite tribes and things like that. So it's not just biblical, but between a sovereign, that's a suzerain, that's God, and a vassal, that's Israel. Sovereign's obviously powerful, vassal, not so much. It was drawn up by the greater power and imposed on the inferior. So this is the Mosaic covenant with a suzerainty covenant. And with this definition, you see that God laid out the rules and Israel agreed to enter into that covenant. If they follow the rules, blessings. If they do not, curses. Way different than the Abrahamic covenant. It's really important to keep that in mind. Abrahamic covenant was in place, like Paul said, 400 years prior to this happening. This is the basis of salvation, how God really desires to work with mankind, but the Mosaic covenant was put in place as a suzerainty covenant for Israel and God for them to become a nation. You know, as we leave Mount Sinai, there's all sorts of wanderings that take place, you know, the 40 years due to their sin. Um, we're going to skip over all of that. But then they enter the promised land, and what happens? You guys know this. What happens? Yeah, but let's think even more broader. What happens for the nation of Israel as they cross the Jericho or the Jordan in parts, they get in there and they attack what? Jericho. Yep. And then what happens from that point? The walls crumble. And then what happens through Joshua and his leadership for Israel? They take over. They conquer a lot of pagan nations. Exactly. So here is the two different um, campaigns. There's my military term, two of the campaigns that Joshua went through, one to the north and one to the south. He basically breaks the backbone of the land of Canaan. Where did they come in at? That's a good map. Like, So if you did a northern, did they come in kind of right in the middle? Yeah. Oh, the starting point. Says it right yeah. there. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm worried that I'm not saying out loud. Probably can't say a lot of this. Why? Well, it says shit them. I don't know how you actually <laughs> read them. It's kind of weird. So they come in, and Joshua does two different campaigns and goes through and hits a lot of the main cities and wipes out like the strongholds of the nations that held this land. But then Joshua dies. Let's start looking at the Bible. Um, so if you wouldn't mind, Joshua 23. We're going to be in Joshua, Judges, and Samuel today. Shouldn't have to flip much, but Joshua 23. We kind of see what's happening at the end of Joshua's life. Uh, 
And it doesn't matter how much you study the Bible, it's really hard for me to remember the order of the books. So Joshua judges Ruth, right? Joshua judges Ruth. You can think of why he's doing that. Or Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, go eat potato chips. Right? You guys <laughs> got to think of these little acronyms that help you out no matter what. G-E-P-A. All right, so Joshua 23, we're going to read 1 through 8. I just kind of want to give us a setup for what we're going to be walking into with Judges. After a long time had passed, and the Lord had given Israel rest from all their enemies around them, and Joshua by then was a very old man, summoned all Israel, their elders, leaders, judges, and officials, and said to them, I am very old. You yourselves have seen everything the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. It was the Lord your God who fought for you. Remember how, how I have allotted as an inheritance for your tribes all the land of the nations that remain, the nations I conquered between the Jordan and the Mediterranean Sea in the west. The Lord your God himself will push them out for your sake. He will drive them out before you, and you will take possession of their land as the Lord your God promised you. Let me stop you real quick there, Wayne. So what is the job of the Israelites now that Joshua is dying? You saw it in those last two verses. They were supposed to continue. To conquer. So I didn't get the map up there, but you can easily, if you search uh, the Israel, like the 12 tribes of Israel ancient, you'll see it kind of mapped out. Um, divided based on how each tribe inherited a certain portion. And, or you can redo the entire book of Joshua and it lays it out. But Judah has down here Judah and Simeon, and then it just kind of breaks out the northern and southern, southern kingdom, all bro- broken up tribally based on territorial allotments. And so their job is to go in and conquer their territory. And who stayed on the other side? Some that requested the other side. Three of them. It was what? Half of Manasseh. Forget right about. Was it Benjamin? Did he say? No, Benjamin came over. Yeah. I can't remember. Yeah. There's three that stay on the other side of the river. Yeah. I should know. But. Yeah. Cool. Wayne, go ahead and continue. We got to see what else is involved in their pursuit. Be very strong. Be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, without turning aside to the right or to the left. Do not associate with these nations that remain among you. Do not invoke the names of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them, but you are to hold fast to the Lord your God as you have until now. Thank you. So who knows how the translations are accurate or not, but mine says, do, so that you may not be mixed with the nations left here among you. So this idea that they're supposed to wipe them out so that way they don't interbreed with those existing nations and specifically why not so that you may not be mixed with these nations left here among you or to their gods so that's a big thing the big reason why God laid the law out was so that way Israel stayed focused on him instead of all the other idols that the world held alright so this is a job set before them Now, before we get into the book that lies ahead, Judges, I just kind of want us to be thinking about this maybe a little bit differently. You know, over the last three weeks, we've really been looking at how God has interacted with humanity, the way that he presented himself to Abraham, the way that he presented himself to the Israelites 
through the Mosaic Covenant, through the sacrifices. It was just a real picture of who God was and the way that He pursued man. But often, we forget that there's another way to see somebody's characteristics. It's the way that they react when they're treated in certain ways. That make sense? If you were to analyze the way a person acts towards individuals, you could figure out their character traits. But in the same way that you looked at the way they reacted to the way they were treated, you could figure out their character traits. Does that make sense? So often in the Bible, once we hit Joshua, but for sure Judges, um, Samuel into the kings, we're like, man, where is God at? He's like not even present here. We can't see any view of who God is. But what we do see is a view of the way the people are. God's people. That's why I entitled this time, The Dark Heart of Israel Revealed. Because what we're going to see in Judges is a real insight into who Israel is. But instead of focusing on them tonight, what I want us to focus on is the way that God reacts to their dark hearts. That kind of make sense? No. So let's kind of get into it. Now we'll just flip over the first chapter of Judges. So what specifically was their command from Joshua, specifically from God through Joshua, to do to the land of Canaan? Simple, we just talked about it. Conquer it. Conquer it, right? Inhabit. Inhabit. Take them over, and who's going to help them do it? God. God, he's going to push them out. Did what, we, did what they see in Jericho, would you consider that miraculous? Without a doubt. Right? And so they're obviously not to rely on their own strength, their own technology, but they have to rely on God in order to conquer enemies that are probably sizably larger than they are. So let's see how they do it. Um, so start with Judges 1, 1 through 3. Somebody want to read the first three verses? After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, Who will be the first to go up and fight for us against the Canaanites? The Lord answered, Judah is to go. I have given the land into their hands. Then the men of Judah said to the Simeonites, their brothers, Come up with us into the territory allotted to us to fight against the Canaanites. We in turn will go with you into yours. So the Simeonites went with them. So we're going to look at some details here. Often we skim over it, but the book of Judges was probably written by Samuel as a view of what happened 400 years prior to him. And I think he wrote it in a specific way. So is Judah following the command of the Lord specifically? No, they're supposed to go by themselves. And what do they do? And they recruited the Simeonites. Why would they do that? Why would any nation do that? They wanted to have more power so that way they could do it more. So we see lack of faith right off the bat. Um, let's flip over to verse 19. You know, Judah does it, Judah and Simeon do it quite well, but there's a couple things we got to show here. So, verse 19 in Judges 1. The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had chariots fitted with fire. All right, so logically, why could they not drive out the people of the plains? Because of their chariots. Their chariots. So, does that make sense? Of course, they tried really hard. Maybe they really just did everything they could, but they just couldn't quite get them out. It makes sense because their technology just didn't quite line up. 
but does that line up with the overall context that we have of what was going on? Not at all, as far as Jericho. Say, tell us some more. Well, just God just proved, um, proved himself over and over again as far as his power, origin, whatever. Absolutely. Doesn't matter if it's cherries, right? So the reason that the cherries weren't taken out had to be something more along the idea of lines of faith or obedience. All right, so let's go down to 22. Um, we'll see kind of how it works for Joseph. Specifically, 24 through 26. The spy saw a man coming out of town and said to him, Please show us how to get into town, and we will treat you well. When he showed them the way into the town, they put the town to the sword, but released the man and his entire family. Then the man went to the land of the Hittites, built a town, and named it Luz. That is its name today, this day. What does he name it? Luz? Luz. L-U-Z, Luz, Luz. Oh, this is Yeah. So they left some alive. Yeah. So they made a treaty with a Canaanite in order to have a better infiltration of the city. Let's look at verse 27. Somebody want to read the first five words, first half of that sentence? However, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean and the Did not drive them out. But the Canaanites continued to live in that land. Verse 28, when Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not, in fact, drive them out. Why do you think Israel chose to put them to forced labor instead of just wiping them out. That's a lot easier on them. How so? Well, they don't have to do the work yet. It's economically wise. So then they probably started interbreeding and worshiping their gods. Which the whole reason God didn't want them to do that. Exactly. Intermarriage. Yep, exactly. And they did. So somebody read the first part of 29. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living in Gezir. Somebody read the first part of 30. You're getting the hat. <laughs> 31. Asher did not drive him out. 33. Naphtali did not drive him out. And then finally, somebody wants to read uh, the entire verse of 34. It's hitting rock bottom here. The Amorites forced the Danites into the hill country and didn't allow them to go down to the so the Danites didn't even make it into the land that they had been given. So we see just a genuine or just a general digression of accomplishment here. And again, accomplishment doesn't have anything to do in this context with military might, but rather faith in God, obedience to Him. So again, I just want to set the tone of what's going on with God's people immediately after He set up the suzerainty covenant. Remember, it is drawn up by the greater power and imposed on the inferior. So they agreed, if we do not listen to you, if we do not follow your commands, then we will get the curses. Um, somebody wants to read chapter 2, the first five verses, first four verses. <coughs> chapter 2. The angel of the Lord went up from, Gal, from Gilgal and told him and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land I swore to give to your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? 
and I have also said I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps for you, and their gods will become snares to you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud, and they called that place Boacom. There they offered sacrifices to the Lord. All right, so we see God respond to their initial disobedience. And what's he say? Is he going to wipe them out? No. Did he say, all right, you broke the covenant, you're done? No. What's he going to do? Yeah. So he says, you chose to keep these people here, so I'm going to leave them here. This is what they're going to do to you, but because you chose this, I'm going to leave them there. What does this tell us about our God? We have so many fuzzy, warm flower words up there, but what other sides of God are we seeing here that also applies to Jesus? He's, um, he's holy and he's righteous. And he cannot... Disobedience has to be reckoned with. God of integrity. Discipline. A four-year-old stole my marker. Alright, so disobedience must be reckoned with. <clears throat> Can you put that to a single word or phrase? Love. Tough love. That's a good way to put it. Just so we all understand it. Because what he could have done, if he like loved them in such a love-warming embrace, he could have simply wiped them all out, all their enemies, and said, "You know what? I love you. Just go and do what you want to do." But instead, he shows them this idea of tough love. You made this choice, therefore. You're going to have to, I'm not leaving you, but I'm going to make you, I'm going to allow you to deal with the ramifications of your choices. I think it shows also that he gives us freedom. Like, he's not, uh, like, a tyrant god. But we do have freedom. So, I mean, it was their choice. The choice God would have made would have been following his instructions exactly because he gave those instructions. Um, but they didn't do that, and, and so he gave that freedom. That's great. We can trace that back from Adam and Eve on. Oh, yeah. Abraham, Moses, the whole deal. He gave Israel the choice to enter into this covenant or not to carry it out. All right, let's just keep rolling. You know, one thing we're going to see over and over um, is his patience. We don't have to write it down now. We'll, we'll see it clearer as we go. Well, he's a great disciplinary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's good. Good. I would say um, <clears throat> long-suffering also. I mean, he just wants the same as patient, but to bear with us. <laughs> Excellent. One thing I think about is either it can be the punishment side of disciplinary or the training side. Mm-hmm. And I think he kind of sees the long term result of what he wants to see. 
So disciplinary and with the approach to trade. Yeah. Right. Not right. to scare. Reconciliation versus yeah. separation. Yeah, that's excellent. Uh, verse 10, um, we kind of see uh, chapter 2, verses 6 through, I guess chapter 2, yeah, verses 6 through the end of the chapter is kind of like a second summary intro. Um, to the book of Judges, and it just kind of says what we've already seen, but more in like a summary way. But if somebody wants to read chapter 2, verse 10, we see another aspect of Israel's choices. <clears throat> After that, the whole generation had been gathered to their fathers. Another generation grew up and never knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. So we see Israel just straight up not teaching their kids about everything that God had done or who he was. or They're just so dark-hearted or disobedient or rebellious, whatever term you want to use. Um, but then God remains with them, and we get to see what he does through the book of Judges. Um, so verse 11 through 15 kind of talks about how they started worshiping. Like in verse 13, they abandoned the Lord. They worshiped Baal and Asterisk. Right, so they're actually worshiping other gods now. And so God gave them over to plunders who plundered them. And he sold them into the powers of their enemies all around them so that they could no longer withstand their enemy. Verse 15, whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them to bring the misfortune as the Lord had warned them and sworn to them. And they were in great distress. Notice the Lord had warned them. So he got curses. He said, if you disobey me, if you go against other gods, this is what I'm going to do to you. But then verse 16, Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the power of those who plundered them. It's a remarkable statement. It's so easy just to read through that quickly. But they are completely rejecting God, worshiping all sorts of other gods around them that are just idols, they're not real gods, doing sacrifice to the point of sacrificing their firstborn child to the God of Molech. And then what does God do? In the midst of all this, how does he respond to their total disobedience? He rescues them. He raises up a judge. He rescues him. He redeems him. Think about Egypt. Right? Think about the way that God reacted to Adam and Eve upon their sin. Think about Noah and the ark. The ark was big enough, most likely, to fit everybody in there. Even though the world should have been destroyed, God gave them a way out. It's incredible. You know, so many of the words we already have up there, but deliver, patient, <coughs> fiercely loves his people, full of grace, provider of salvation, even in the midst of this dark time. So, <coughs> we're not going to walk through the judges the way that we just walked through those first two chapters. Um, so I do want to show you... There's something we see over and over uh, six different times because there's six different judges that show up in this book. Six, six different major judges. There's some smaller ones thrown in there that just get a verse. But it's a cycle of sin in the judges. So they start by serving the Lord. And then they fall into sin and idolatry. The punishment for that, as God said in the covenant, is that they will be enslaved. He will no longer protect them or provide for them from the, the stronger armies that are around them. Then we see they cry out to the Lord. God raises up a judge. They are delivered. And then there's this 
this time of like silence or rest, 40 years, 80 years, as long as it takes for that generation to die out. And as soon as that generation dies out, the kids having no clue of what had happened because the parents aren't teaching them, get back into the same cycle of sin. But over and over and over and over, we see that a month, once they cry out to the Lord, God once again raises up another judge. The book of Judges encompasses about 400 years of Israelite history. So 400 years after the Mosaic Covenant was ratified like three different times, they agreed to the stipulations. God continues to show them patience to redeem and redeem and redeem and redeem by simply their cries to him. You know, just to give you a kind of a specific example, my short judge that does it perfectly, um, chapter 3, verses 7, <coughs> 7 through 11. If somebody wants to read that, we can see this cycle kind of consolidated down to a single event. The Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They forgot the Lord their God and worshipped the Baal. The Baal's and Asherah's. The Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he sold them to Cushan, the red king of Aram, of the two rivers. And the Israelites served him eight years. Israelites cried out to the Lord, so the Lord raised up Achmel, son of Phanaz, Caleb's youngest brother, as a deliverer to save the Israelites. <coughs> the Lord was on him, and he judged Israel. Achmel went to battle, and the Lord handed over Cushan, king of Aram, to him, so that the Achmel overpowered him. Then the land was peaceful forty years, and Achmel, son of Canaz, died. And you'll see verse 12. The Israelites again did what was evil on the side of the Lord. Chapter 4. The Israelites again did what was evil on the side of the Lord. Just stuck on repeat. So are there any words that describe God that you see from His reaction to the Israelites in this cycle of sin that we should write up on our board? important to describe somebody's anger, I think, because there could be like a reactionary anger, there could be like a temper. Like, how would you describe his anger? Um, I don't know. How, how else to say it other than just a holy anger? Yeah. I mean, What's the source of his anger? Because they're disobedience. Right. Sin. They're their choice to pull away from it, right? But it is important to see that aspect of God, right? I think it's even more than just their disobedience that makes that leads God to anger, but um, that his he because this is not what he wants for his people and for his creation, and that would just be so frustrating, you know? Like, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. Yeah. Even before the law is in place, like Genesis six, God looks at what they've done to His world, right? And they use words like He was just repelled, repulsed by them. Mm-hmm. His heart broke with it, and then he's going to destroy it. So it is like you've ruined my world. Mm-hmm. I can't take this. That's yeah. why I was going to say heartbroken. I think heartbroken. 
And there's pain for Israel and pain for these pagan nations as well, who, you know, I mean, he has a heart for them also. The whole thing is just painful to sit back and watch. And, you know, this is getting into a territory we can't really delve deeply into, but what specific um, covenant breakings, what, what specific things do they do that the author mentions to break the covenant in this section? Worshiping false gods. Yeah, so it's not like they were picking up sticks on Sabbath, right? There's just, <laughs> it instantly goes to the big one. It's not like any part of the law should not be kept, right? It's all the same, but it kind of shows you, I don't know, really, like I said, you got to really go a lot deeper in this to truly understand it, but it shows you the result of their sins to to reject God as a whole and worship other gods. Yeah, it shows you the depth of really how far they fell. Mm-hmm. I mean, to, to just a generation or two ago, having God do those miraculous things to bring them to the promised land and forget all about it and mm-hmm. flush it and start worshiping other gods. It's yep. crazy. I was thinking that he just even when he did that, had Joshua with the big stones of pillar of stones to say, when your kids see this, mm-hmm. tell them yeah. what I've done. So he was already helping them. You need to tell over and over again. You must not forget yeah. to tell the younger generation. And That's good. They chose. That's good. Yeah, really, the whole book of De- Deuteronomy can be summarized in one word. It's remember. It's like Moses giving four sermons, they think, before they crossed over the Jordan, before he died, saying, remember what God did. When you get there, remember. You know, so it's like God trying to teach them, man, you're going you're gonna to mess up, but please try to remember this. I think the example of the judges also goes back to God's characteristic of being um, responsive. I think, yeah, we have that seat up there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's in the first column toward the bottom. Yep. Um, because he is very faithful when they cry out mm-hmm. and they're in over their heads. Absolutely. Um, to provide. That's good. Does he have to based on the Mosaic Covenant? No. No. So what does this show us? It's like the heart of God continually comes back to the God we see in the Abrahamic Covenant. Even though they're locked into the Mosaic Covenant, when they cry out, he wants to save. And he does save over and over and over. Because it's by really the good. covenant, they should be wiped out. They should just be... First time, done. You broke the laws. What's that? Because they broke a law. This is the covenant that they entered into. We read through Deuteronomy 27, 28, 29. It says, if you follow my laws, blessings. If you do not follow my law, curse after curse after curse after curse. But we see God not even living up to his own covenant because he lives up to the secondary covenant far more the Abrahamic. All right, so the book of Judges is incredible. And if you've got questions about it and want to know more about it, please come talk to me. Honestly, it's probably my favorite book in the entire Bible, just due to the way that the author wrote it and the lessons that he's trying to teach us through it. Um, it's just beautiful. But I just want to give you a few different um, lessons from the judges. One, it shows us the function of a theocracy. Theocracy. Maybe you've heard that word before, maybe not. But anybody know what theocracy means? 
when God is ruler. Yeah, exactly. God is present, God is king, God is the ruler, right? And so we have God up here, and then down below him are the people. So what we see kind of a crucial element here, why do you think that God does not raise up another Joshua or another Moses after Joshua dies? He very well could have. He wants them to look to him. Because it said at the beginning of Judges that in chapter 2, when Joshua dismissed the people, verse 6 in chapter 2, the Israelites all went to their own inheritance to take possession of the land. The people worshipped the Lord all the days of Joshua, all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen the great works. But then it says when they died, the children grew up not knowing God. So it's as if they were simply looking to the leader in order to follow the rules. So why would God not want that? It was getting theocracy. It's not a theocracy? What do you mean? God's in charge. That's the, that's the king. That's the... Yep. But God was directing Moses. God was directing Joshua. But at some point, what the people start idolizing the man himself instead of God? Yeah, potentially. That's good. And because he does give us freedom, he wants us to genuinely know him and choose to know him and love him instead of just following somebody who says, like, these are the laws, this helps our nation. Absolutely. We're going to do this. That's, that's, that's it, I think. How does God design us to relate to him? Is it through a pastor that's really good at speaking? Right? Is it through a priest or through the Pope? Is it through individuals? It's through him and his spirit. That's how the whole thing was set up. Think of Adam and Eve in the garden. It's just them and God. Period. And it sets Israel apart and, you know, as something unique and different, which he's been doing since they left. Well, you know, since always, really. But all the other nations have a king. And eventually Israel starts saying, like, well, we want a king because we want to be like the other nations. And that was never what God wanted. He wanted them to be different um, so it would be attractive to other people. Yeah, absolutely. So good. So theocracy is one thing that you got to kind of see out of this. And God is there, and he simply sends in a deliverer. How long did the judge stick, stick around? 40 years. 40 years this time, sometimes less. They were just there for a short amount of time to deliver them specifically from the enemy that was there. But ultimately, they were supposed to continue to look back to God. Think about they had the priests, they had the sacrificial system, they had the tabernacle, all these ways to relate to God on a one-on-one basis. It's interesting, the attraction, because of the way they lived their lives. I thought of Rahab. She was attracted to them. Yep. Because yep. of how they had behaved for her family. Yep. And then, of course, then Ruth, she was so attracted. It just amazes me. Out of Moab comes this beautiful woman who chooses to follow a very sad, older lady. But she is attracted to yep. that kind of life. Yep. She wants that. She, so there must have been others, too, that but we see where these two particularly through the line of Jesus. I know, that's what I was going to say. Cool, you know, so. And they're, they're, highla- they're highlighted. <laughs> and God obviously wants us to see that, man, this is who I take. Whoever wants to come and be a part of my family. And, and especially undesirables. Yep. Zach, you know, a, a prostitute. Yep. And then a Moabitess. You know, yep. whoa, that's pretty sad. But yep. 
here it is, God. Open. Their hearts were open, and I just think, wow, God. Yeah, it's incredible. It's amazing you did that. No, that's, that's awesome you pointed that out. Do we have inclusionary up there? Nope. I didn't that one. Yeah, because that's kind of what you're talking about. He never excludes if he, you know if you want to be a part of this. He, you know, he didn't turn Ruth away. She's better than the whole Bible. Yep. You know? Yeah, he didn't say, "Oh, sorry." Yep. You're not an Israelite. Yep. Such a good point of view. You know, the second thing I kind of wanted to point out might be the last one. Yeah, from judges, is that the salvation of the judge gets less and less each time. So with Othniel, the one that we read, it's like the complete salvation takes place. Enemy is completely wiped out. They have 40 years um, of rest. But then as you continue through the book, each time the salvation, the amount of enemies that they destroy gets less and less, and the amount of rest that they get gets, gets less and less. Well, in the book of Judges, Samuel doesn't include. So it's, again, the author's intention is showing them that with each time, the, the salvation gets less and less. Now, what do you think the author is trying to show them based on the fact that the salvation from each judge gets less and less with each judge due to the flaws of that judge? Their nation can't be saved by a man. Maybe. <clears throat> maybe that they're all corrupt. Yeah, maybe. I mean, they, yeah, even your judges are corrupt. Even the judges. Yep. Maybe it goes back to wanting more dependence on God than a person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because who's who's the one bringing these judges in? God. God's God. But they're sinful men. Right? They are. They're so bad. where are you going? Go a little bit farther, Wayne. So what is God going to have to do in order to truly save them? Bring a true Savior. Bring the Messiah. Once again, we get a view of the Messiah. The true judge. You know that handout that I gave you? Um, if you flip to the second page, you'll see Jesus as the judge. Kind of some nice New Testament breakdowns that kind of show you that. Once again, pointing them, man, there's got to be a better Savior. Like with the sacrificial system, there's got to be a better sacrifice that lasts more than a day or a week. He's just pointing, there's got to be more that God can provide to truly save us. Because we see that God wants to save us, and so he must have somebody in store that's going to save us even more. You know, when you get to the end of Judges, they call it the appendices. Um, There's two different stories. One, it's the Danites going through and stealing a priest and his idol in order to set up their own religion. So you have like one of the tribes of Israel hiring a Levite to be a priest to like worship God in the way they want to worship him, which is totally sacrilegious. And then the second story is of, um, I think he's a Levite prostitute who is raped to death by the Benjaminites. And then he hacks her up, sends her body parts all across the land, and they come in in order to wipe out the um, Benjamites as a whole. This is how they end the book. And just to show you exactly what the author is showing us, look at the very last verse of Judges. Judges 21, 25. 
Judges 21, 25. Bueller? Bueller? <laughs> In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. Everyone did as he saw fit. For me, all the people did what was right in their own eyes. So you see the heart of Israel at this point. But what is God not doing? He's not rescuing. What's well, that? He's not really providing a... a he's not destroying them. He's not destroying them, no, for he's, sure. He's not destroying them, but, but at the same time... It, um, he's letting them play this thing out. Without a doubt. Yeah. He's not destroying them entirely, but yet he's not just allowing them to have, like, what? Easy, get out of free, get out no. of jail free card? Right. So he allows them to make their own choices. But according to the covenant, what should he have done? He destroyed them. 400 years later, they are still getting God's provision and his protection, even though they are not living up the covenant. This says so much about who God is. Think about it with our own lives. When we spend a week or a month or five years doing things that has nothing to do with God, is God just waiting to pick us off? Not according to the book of Judges. He's just waiting for us to cry out to Him so that way He can send the deliverer that we need. Does He allow us to experience the consequences of our choices? Yes. But does that distance Him from us even slightly? Awesome. Any thoughts, questions about Judges? We'll take a little break here, look at the kings, at least Saul and David. But any any thoughts on this before we move on? It's just so much shows human nature. It's us. It's us. It's us. My verse says everyone did what he wanted. Like, or, you know, and like if you look at this, like, okay, this girl got raped to death. We're going to, like, cut her up and, like, get the people back together, like, 12 pieces to send it out and be like, I think we've crossed the line, everybody. Like, <laughs> this is, like, this is what we want. Like, everybody just willy-nilly, like, that's where you're at. That's crazy, you know? <laughs> I know. I'm it's with you. It's nutty to think, like with the structure, like, without the structure of God's law in place, or, like, following and seeking Him, how far and fast things can slide just out of control. Yeah, that's good. And I think even in, good. in relation to our country, I, I have a dear friend from Haiti, and as I was teaching him to drive, he, he said about all the rules, like stop signs, he says, oh, in Haiti, we don't have any rules. We just do whatever we want. <laughs> And you know what a mess. And yeah. we don't appreciate why they the good things that come out of the structure. Yeah. And scripture even speaks to that, that there is freedom in the law. There's freedom in that. Yeah. Um, because there's order and not chaos. Yeah. And I think this That's parallels good. with um, the first chapter of Romans really well. If anybody wants a little extra reading. Um, that goes on in a New Testament way to describe yeah, how, you know, they knew God, they didn't acknowledge him, and God basically just turns 
them over to their mind and says, like, that's your punishment. And it shows very quickly at the end of that first chapter how things unravel, just worse and worse and worse, to the point that people are applauding other people doing bad, simple things. Mm. That's an excellent connection. I'd never made that connection before, but yeah, Romans 1, 18 through the end of the chapter, mm-hmm. it's exactly what you're saying. God <laughs> gave them up to their debased minds. And mm-hmm. That's awesome. And it's really just, you're describing a relativistic culture, which was there, if, whatever, 11, 1200 BC, as well as 2017 AD. It's a relativistic culture, right? Like you're saying, the human heart is the same across the board. God does not change, but it also seems that the human heart does not change. Much more civilized, but still is the base. Yeah. In our own mind. Civilized now, yeah. Oh, but man is basically good. Just ask any liberal. Yeah. Man is basically good, you know? Yeah. Awesome. So, in case you want to kind of geek out a little bit more on the Messiah, Um, Jesus and Samson have a lot of similarities, whether or not it was designed to be that way, but specifically the last part of Jesus's or Samson's life are very similar to Jesus's crucifixion. So I'll just leave that up there. We'll take like a three minute break and then we'll get into the judge, the end of the king. Okay, so the end of judges, judges ends with Samson and then first Samuel starts with Eli and Samuel. Most likely Eli and Samson, they believe, were contemporaries. So Samson's not mentioned at all in the book of Samuel, um, but it seems like it's a similar time frame, just so we know where we're at. And so we're going to roll into the time of the kings. You know, there's a lot of really good stuff in there about Samuel. He uh, was definitely a priest. Seems like he was a prophet. He also hacks up king whatever into pieces so you could almost consider him as a judge as well um, he's just a lot of really good stuff and like Dee said he might have been like a really good judge that came in and like truly saved Israel uh, due to his obedience to God but I, what I want to look at is more big picture um, starting in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel again we're looking at the people's response to God and then God's response to them <clears throat> So if somebody wouldn't mind reading 1 Samuel 8, we'll just go with verse 4, 4 through 6, 4 4 and 5, just 4 and 5. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. All right, so remember, what is their form of government? Theocracy. Theocracy. So by requesting a king, what are they doing? Replacing God. What word can we use to describe this in today's cultures? Monarchy. But in order to remove one king and put it into another one, what would we call that? Deposing. Mutiny. Revolution. Oh, yes. Coup d'etat, even smarter. <laughs> Anarchy. Anarchy, right? So they are looking at their God, their creator, the one that has done so many things for them, who continually sends judges and says, what you got? Let's see God's response. About time, right? He's going to get rid of them, isn't he? Verse 6 through 9. 
they said, give us a king to judge us. Samuel considered their demand sinful, so he prayed to the Lord. But the Lord told him, listen to the people and everything they say to you. They've not rejected you, they've rejected me as their king. They are doing the same thing to you that they've done to me. Since the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, abandoning me and worshiping other gods. Listen to them, but you must solemnly warn them and tell them about the rights of the king who will rule over them. All right. So God basically makes it plain uh, the horrendous nature of what they're doing. That's so sad. It is. Yeah. And you see how often have they been doing this? What's it say? Since you brought them out of Egypt. Out of Egypt. So we're looking at like 400 plus years to their physical redeemer. And again, how has God been responding to them over the last 400 years? We know he's a disciplinarian, but even more so, what do we see? Patience. so patient. So patient. And now they're rejecting him outright, and we'll see just how much more patient he gets. So in verse 10 and on, Samuel lays out all the negative things that the kings will do. Um, he will take your sons and appoint them to chariots, right? So their sons are going to be killed in the army. He's just going to take, uh, verse 15, he will take one-tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and courtiers, so he's going to impose a tax. He will take your female slaves. He just kind of lays out logically why you do not want a king, why you want God to be your king, because he doesn't require all these things. But then if somebody wouldn't mind reading verse 19 and 20. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. Yeah, so you see the heart of the people. So we want to read 21 and 22, see God's response. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, Listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the men of Israel, Everyone go back to his town. So just another example of God allowing people to make their own choices. Um, in chapter 9, we see him choose Saul. We'll get back to that. But I kind of want to play this rejection of theocracy out fully. If you want to go to chapter 12, you kind of see the concluding part of it. First Samuel chapter 12. Somebody want to read 13 through 15? Theocracy still exists. The king will be kind of a, a somewhat of a mediator, but you can almost put him down here with the rest of the people. As long as you follow me, as long as you alter into me, as long as the king leads you that way, things will go well. We can stay in this covenant. But then he also lets them know just kind of the choice they've made. Somebody want to read 16 through 19? Now therefore, stand in 
See this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is today not the wheat harvest? I will call to the Lord, and he will send thunder and rain, that you may perceive and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, and ask him to for yourselves. So Samuel called to the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die, if we have added to all our sins the evil of asking a king for ourselves. All right, so the people now understand, due to God's miraculous bringing the thunder and rain at a time where it must never rain, that they are committing mutiny. It's like a coup d'etat, right? And they're like, oh man, please pray for us. We are definitely going to be killed for doing what we're doing, right? Think about in all cultures across the board, across all history, when you try to rebel against the ruling authority, what happens to that individual? Off with their heads, right? Death sentence, whatever form they take. So they're like, man, we're, we're done. Please, Samuel, step in. But then Samuel immediately replies, and this has got to be God speaking through him. Somebody want to read verse 20? Samuel replied, don't be afraid. Even though you've committed all this evil, don't turn away from following the Lord. Instead, worship the Lord with all your heart. Don't be afraid. How on earth can God say that? Through Samuel, don't be afraid. What is keeping him, who is holy in his anger, fully righteous and just, from carrying out everything with the Mosaic Covenant? Because he knows Jesus is coming. There's no other way around. The king himself goes to the cross for his people in their rebellion. Think about that. Let that sink in. The God who stands back from all time, sees everything laid out at once, is able to hold back his just judgment and anger on his people because he knows that even though they are rebelling against him, that Jesus, the King of all kings, will die for his people and preserve their life and their relationship with him. Just incredible. And we looked at this at the beginning of this class, but Romans 3, 23, 24, and 25. You want to look deeper at why this makes sense? 23 through 25, it talks about how God like passed over previously committed sins because he knew that Jesus would come and atone them all, once and for all, every direction, past and future. And we see it laid out right here on mass scales with the nation of Israel. Incredible. And it's amazing. You see God working through Samuel's prophet and priest. Verse 23, Moreover, as for me, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. He rejects, Samuel's rejected, sons are rejected, but God tells him, keep praying for this people. Just shows you God's heart for his sinful nations. All right, so we see Saul is the first chosen king. You guys know what the name Saul means? Chosen. Chosen. So who would have chose Saul? God did. But even more so, why is he called chosen? The people, right? They describe Saul as like a head and a half above all other men, so he's really large, right? Probably handsome. Maybe comes from somewhat of a wealthy family. It's like what people would want from their king. And we know, we know that 
outcome of Saul. But what's really important, again, we're looking at God, not the people, to see what God gave Saul. So if you wouldn't mind flipping chapter 10, 1 Samuel 10. Somebody wants to read verse 9. This is referring to Saul here. When Saul turned around to leave Samuel, God changed his heart, and all the signs came about that day. So what did God just do to Saul? He gave him a new heart. Look at verse 10. Next one. When Saul and his attendant arrived at, at Gibeah, a group of prophets met him. Then the Spirit of God took control of him and prophesied along with them. Gave him the Spirit of God. And then chapter 10, verse 26, we see the third thing that God gave Saul. Chapter 10, verse 26. also went to his home in Gabeah, and brave men whose hearts God had touched went with him. And so what did God just give Saul at the beginning of his reign? Everything he needs. A new heart, God's spirit, and godly men to counsel him. Incredible. You know, we think about, ah, the people wanted Saul. He was just a dud from the get-go, a rejection. But we see that God gave him everything he needed in order to do it well. Just so, so much about who God is. I think that relates well to what we talked about when, I'm looking to see if anything's up there, but when they left um, Egypt, how he set his people up for success. He gave them the law because, you know, yeah. they didn't know what to do with the country. I mean, and in this case, they don't know how to have a king. And, yep. I mean, That's good. Yeah. Absolutely. He's, he's trying to set them up for success, even though this isn't what he Wants for them. That's really good. Because he could have just given like a total failure of his oh, king yeah. and watched the entire nation crumble. But yeah. instead he gives them a king that can actually do it. That's great. That's really good. So we I see... It's important to remember... Please. Sorry. I'm no, sorry. keep going. Because, I, <laughs> sorry. because sometimes I can get tricked into thinking like that God mm-hmm. is dealing me hardships for character lessons. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. That's like something goes through my mind. Yeah. Then I'm going to get what is hard because God wants to build some kind of character trait or something. But I think the truth is that he shows us over and over is he wants to equip us for success and he wants the best for us and he does want to see us succeed and, you know, what he wants and not succeed in our own selfish endeavors. But he wants us to succeed in, in being people after his heart. Yeah, that's really good. Which is kind of interesting that you know what Saul is going to do. Mm-hmm. So even though he knows what Saul is going to do a few years later, he still equips him with everything he yep. needs to be successful. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. It's up to that. Why waste your time and energy and yeah. spirit? Mm-hmm. Gonna it's kind of like why love Adam the way that God probably loved Adam. Or you. That's just it. No. <laughs> you specifically, Mike. Why wouldn't I? No, that's good. No, that's really good. Um, so we see in verse, you know, we're, we're kind of running a little low on time. Um, in chapter 15, we see why Saul is rejected as a king. 
Somebody wants to read chapter 15, verses 22 and 23, just so we know exactly why God ends up rejecting him. So why did Saul get rejected? And so even though he's supposed to be a, simply a filter that helps the people understand what God wants them to do as well as a leader that leads them to it, he does not do that. And so he's removed from the equation. What's interesting though, any idea how long Saul reigned for? This is like within the first few years of his kingship. 40 years. So think about just God's patience. Why did he allow him to reign for so long? And so it's God's patience, it's a chance to allow him to maybe turn around, to turn back to him. It's just There's just so much there about God. So then, obviously, the next man is David. David. Um, if you want to know where it says it, but 1 Samuel 13, 14, God says that I have chosen a man after my own heart. So if you want to know what David's heart is towards God specifically, read the Psalms that he wrote. You just see his humble he knows that he needs god he continually is requesting god to help him he is transparent with his own flaws he understands his frailty and how short his life is going to be and how little he can do it's just you can just see why it's just so i think so applicable to understand what david's heart was towards god for our own lives because we can have that same heart towards god it's not that he was really good at the slingshot Right? Or it could fight bears and lions. or It was just his heart is what drew him, drew God to choosing him as a king. Um, let's skip over just so we can see some um, more messianic stuff, Messiah stuff. 2 Samuel 7. This is what's known as the Davidic covenant. It's one of five covenants that God kind of enacted um, throughout the Old Testament. Um, and it's one that he makes specifically with David, but in it we see such a heart towards David and what he wants him to be, and also um, how Jesus is going to be so much more than even David could be. Um, if somebody wouldn't mind reading um, verse 9. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. So we see that God specifically interacts with people's lives to give them blessings in the here and now. It's important to remember that. So we want to read 10 and 11. Go ahead and stop there. So we see that through 
his king, the man after his own heart, God is also going to bless all the people as well. Ways that judges could never do. David actually fights off and subdues all enemies in the, uh, Israel, is, Israeli territory. And then we see the bigger picture, um, 12 through 16. Somebody wants to read 12 through 16. When your time comes and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up after your descend, after you, your descendant, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He'll be a, he will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a human rod and with blows from others. But my faithful love will never leave him as I removed it from Saul. I removed it from him your way. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. Thanks. So it's kind of twofold here. One, it's referring most likely to Solomon a little bit, um, but even bigger to Jesus. Um, it's, it's a bit confusing. I, I've read this so many times and I don't quite know how to interpret it. It makes sense. He'll build a house for my name. So that's his kingdom itself, but it's also the kingdom of Jesus and the house, the temple that Jesus ends up building through the church. I will establish this throne of his kingdom forever. That's Jesus, not Solomon. Um, I will be like a father to him and he will be a son to me. So that could be Jesus, obviously, and Solomon. When he commits iniquities, I will punish him with a rod such as mortals use, um, but I will not take my steadfast love for him. Solomon, obviously, but it could be Jesus on the cross. I don't know. Either way, this was major for the Jewish people in the time of Jesus. Right? That's why they're all looking for the son of David was due to this specific <coughs> prophecy, the covenant that was laid out. Such cool things. Any questions, thoughts about that? It's a big one. I encourage you to take some time, meditate, read some commentaries on it. Um, it's, it's one of the big ones. There's five different covenants that we see roll through. So that you remember them all. Um, there's uh, Adamic, the Adam covenant, right, which he breaks. Um, then there's the Noahic covenant, Abrahamic, Mosaic, and Davidic covenant. So it shows us major ways of who God is, how he relates to his people. What's the second covenant? Uh, Noahic. Oh, I don't know. Whenever you throw IC on it, it makes it a nice little adjective, but it's hard to pronounce. Yeah. Um, so the thing I want to kind of end with, um, it's the very last chapter of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel 24. Um, this one is just so cool. Um, I, just, I really will push over just a few minutes with our time frame, um, but it's just, it's just too good to not um, spend a little time on. So we see that, um, I guess we'll just read. Somebody want to read uh, verse, so the last chapter, verses 1 through 2. Actually, 1 through 4, 2 Samuel 1 through 4. Kind of get an understanding of what's going on here. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go make a census of Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab and the army commanders with him, Go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and enroll the fighting men so that I may know how many there are. But Joab replied to the king, May the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over, and may the eyes of my lord the king see it. 
Why does my lord the king want to do such a thing? The king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders, so they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. All right, so why would a king, whether it's David or anybody else, want to count up the men of their country? See if you're strong enough. Exactly. Army size. Pride. 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 What, who is David relying on in this specific circumstance? His army. His army, right, and not God. Now, it does say that the anger of the Lord was kindled because God incited David against them. If you look at 1 Chronicles 21.1, it's the same passage, but it said that Satan incited David. So there's a little bit like what's going on there. Possibly the author of 2 Samuel could have seen God as ultimately in charge, so Satan can only do what God allows him to do. So, But either way, that's just for people to nitpick over if they want to. Um, so we see that David decides to trust himself and his army over God. And then God's reaction to that. Somebody wants to read verse 10 through 15. We'll see God's reaction. David was conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, O Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. Before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad, the prophet, David's seer. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I am giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, Shall there come upon you three years of famine in your land, or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you, or three days of plague in your land? Now then, think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. David said to Gad, I am in deep, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But do not let me fall into the hands of men. Yeah, one more, please. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning till the end of the time designated, and 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. All right. It's a heck of a scenario, right? It's really cool to see David's response to that, just saying, God, whatever you choose, you're great in mercy. But we see that the consequences that were doled out upon David were due to his rejection of God. So again, think of... Theocracy. The king was supposed to be a representative of God to the people and then turn back to God for everything. And David essentially replaces God with himself and his own army. It's what got Saul removed. And so we see a major consequence come in. Um, but what's really neat, again, focus on God. Let's see what God continues to do. If somebody wants to read 16 and 17. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel, who was afflicting the people, enough, withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I have sinned, I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep, what have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. So cool to see David's heart. But what do we see God do here? As his plans being accomplished for the judgment that was just, he relented. He relented. So the angel is 
man, I have no idea what that angel must look like, but he stops on top of the threshing floor of this Jebusite. But it, it just gets more beautiful. I'll keep reading in 18. Then Gad, that's a prophet of God, so a man of God, somebody who speaks for God to, to people. That day Gad came to David and said, Go up and erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite. Following Gad's or God's instructions, David went up as the Lord had commanded. When Arunar looked down and he saw the king and his servant coming towards him, and Arunar went out and prostrated himself before the king and his face fell to the ground. Arunar said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord, so the plagues may be averted from the people. Then Arunah said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering, and the threshing sledge, and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Arunah gives to the king. And Arunah said to the king, May the Lord your God respond to you favorably. But the king said to Arunah, No, I will not... I will, No, but I will buy them from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. How cool is that? So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. David built an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and offerings of well-being. So the Lord answered his supplication, his cry out for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. It gets even better. So... As you get into Second Chronicles 3.1, if you want to write it down. This is where Solomon builds the temple. On that threshing floor? So the temple with the sacrificial system was established in this exact spot where God showed mercy to the people due to his servants' sacrifices. Right? Think about all the things that the sacrifices um, brought to the people, right? We went over it all last week. The power of the sacrifice to the people, the forgiveness of their sins, the atonement, right? So it's important to realize that this is where the temple was because this is where God ultimately related to the people of Israel. But even more importantly, what happened just outside of the temple right around Christ's day? It's crucifixion. So all this is pointing to a significant act of atonement that, as it says here, he answered a supplication for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. True Israel is all people who fall under the Abrahamic covenant. And we get that because of the sacrifice that took place in the exact same spot through Jesus. You guys kind of catching that? It's so deep, but it's so beautiful the way that God just laid this out. And what I love, just kind of end on this, why did this event, specifically with David sacrificing in that one spot, why did it take place? What was the catalyst for it? How did this chapter begin? Disobedience. Through sin. Through mankind's sin, we get to see the greatest acts of God's mercy and his grace. It's incredible. I think about Adam and Eve and then God's response to him immediately about the one who would come to crush the head of the serpent. Think about all the people in Noah's day and then the ark that appeared. It just goes on and on and on. Think about it in your own life. 
It's like through our major acts of disobedience, those trials that we put ourselves through, we get to see the true mercy and grace and name of our God. And then think about what that says about God. His desire to show us who he is and his mercy and his love, regardless of if we choose him or not. Incredible.